Welcome to tape number 9 of Gleanings in the Godhead, Part 2, Excellencies Which Pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing the reading of chapter 15, The Call of Christ. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Matthew 11:27. This verse supplies the immediate connecting link between the sovereignty of divine grace mentioned, verses 25 and 26, and the communication of that grace through Christ, verses 28 to 30. The settlements of divine grace were made and secured in the everlasting covenant, communication of it by and through Christ as the mediator of that covenant. First, here is the grand commission the mediator received from the Father. All things necessary to the administration of the covenant were delivered unto Christ. Compare Matthew 28:18, John 5, and John 17.2. Second, here is the inconceivable dignity of the Son. Lest a false inference be drawn from the preceding clause, the essential and absolute deity of Christ is affirmed. Inferior in office, Christ's nature and dignity is the same as the Father's. As mediator, Christ receives all from the Father, but as God the Son, He is in every way equal to the Father in His incomprehensible person. Third, here the work of the mediator is summed up in one grand item, that of revealing the Father to those given to Him. Thus, the context of Matthew 11 reveals Christ in the following characters. As the upbraider of an impenitent, as the pronouncer of solemn woe upon those who were unaffected by his mighty work, as the announcer of the day of judgment, declaring that the punishment awaiting those who scorn gospel mercy should be more intolerable than the, that meted out to Sodom, as the affirmer of the high sovereignty of God who conceals and reveals the things pertaining to salvation, as the mediator of the covenant, as the Son co-equal with the Father, and as the one by whom the Father is revealed. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. 28. 
having examined the context of these words so that we might the better see their connection and the particular characters in which Christ is portrayed, consider the person addressed, the ones who were invited to the rest giver. This point brings some differences among commentators. Some give a narrower scope to this call of Christ and some a wider. Note, however, that all the leading earlier expositors restricted this particular call to a special class. Quoting John Calvin, quote, He now kindly invites to himself those whom he acknowledges to be fit for becoming his disciples. Though he is ready to reveal the Father to all, yet the great part are careless about coming to him because they are not affected by a conviction of their necessities. Hypocrites give themselves no concern about Christ because they are intoxicated with their own righteousness and neither hunger nor thirst after his grace. Those who are devoted to the world set no value on a heavenly life. It would be vain, therefore, for Christ to invite either of these classes, and therefore he turns to the wretched and afflicted. He speaks of them as laboring or being under a burden, and does not mean generally those who are oppressed with griefs and vexations, but those who are overwhelmed by their sins, who are filled with alarm at the wrath of God, and who are ready to sink under its weighty, so weighty a burden, end quote, quoting John Calvin. Quoting Matthew Henry, quote, The character of the persons invited, all that labor and are heavy laden, this is a word in season to him that is weary, Isaiah 50, verse 4. Those that complain of the burden of the ceremonial law, which was an intolerable yoke, and was made much more so by the tradition of the elders, Luke 11:46, let them come to Christ, and they shall be made easy. But it is rather to be understood of the burden of sin, both the guilt and the power of it. All those, and those only, are invited to rest in Christ that are sensible of sin as a burden and groan under it, that are not only convicted of the sin of evil, excuse me, the evil of sin, their own sin, but are contrite and sold for it that are really sick of sin, weary of the service of the world and of the flesh, that see their state sad and dangerous by reason of sin, and are in pain and fear about it, as Ephraim, Jeremiah 31, 18-20, the prodigal, Luke 15, 17, the publican, Luke 18, 13, Peter's hearers, Acts 2, 37, Paul, Acts 9, the jailer, Acts 16, 29-30. This is a necessary preparative for pardon and peace, end quote quoting Matthew Henry. Quoting John Newton, quote, Who are the persons here invited? They are those who labor. The Greek expresses toil with weariness and are heavy laden. This must here be limited to spiritual concerns, otherwise it will take in all mankind, even the more hardened and obstinate opposers of Christ and the gospel. Referring to the self-righteous religionists, this writer went on to say, you avoid gross sin. You have perhaps a form of godliness. The worst you can think, the worst you think that can be said of you is that you employ all your thoughts and every means that will not bring you under the lash of the law to heap up money, to join house to 
house and feel the field. Or you spend your days in a complete indolence, walking in the way of your own heart and looking no further, and here you will say you find pleasure and insist on it, that you are neither weary nor heavy laden, then it is plain that you are not the persons whom Christ here invites to partake of his rest, end quote, quoting John Newton. Quoting John Gill, quote, The persons invited are not all the inhabitants of mankind, but with a restriction, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, meaning not those who labor in the service of sin and Satan are laden with iniquity, and insensible of it. Those are not weary of sin nor burdened with it, nor do they want or desire any rest for their souls, but such who groan, being burdened with the guilt of sin on their conscience, and are pressed down with the unsupportable yoke of the law and the load of their trespasses, and have been laboring till they are weary in order to obtain peace of conscience and rest for their souls by the observance of these things, but in vain. These are encouraged to come to him, lay down their burdens at his feet, and look to him, and lay hold by faith on his person, blood, and righteousness, end quote, quoting John Gill. In more recent times, many preachers have dealt with the text, Matthew 11:28 as though the Lord Jesus was issuing an indefinite invitation regarding his terms as sufficiently general and wide in their scope to include sinners of every type. They suppose that the words, Ye that labor and are heavy laden, referred to the misery and bondage which the fall brought upon the human race as its unhappy subjects vainly seek satisfaction in the things of time and sense and endeavor to find happiness in the pleasures of sin. Quoting Fawcett and Brown, Quote, the universal wretchedness of man is depicted on both its sides, the active and the passive forms of it. End quote. They are laboring for contentment by gratifying their lust, only to add to their miseries by becoming more and more the burdened slaves of sin. It is true the unregenerate labor in the very fire, and they are weary, and they weary themselves for very vanity. Habakkuk 2.13 it is true they labor in vain, Jeremiah 51:58. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind, Ecclesiastes 5:16? It is true they spend money for that which is not bread, eat and labor for that which satisfieth not, Isaiah 55:2. For the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing, Ecclesiastes 1:8. It is equally true that the unregenerate are heavy laden, a people laden with iniquity, Isaiah 1.4, yet they are totally insensible to their awful state. The labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them, because he knoweth not how to go to the city, Ecclesiastes 10.15. Moreover, the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God. To, to the wicked, Isaiah 57, 20, and 21. They have neither peace of conscience nor rest of heart, but it is quite another matter to affirm these are the characters Christ invited to come unto him for rest. 
We prefer the view taken by the older writers. Over a century ago, a latitudinarian spirit began to creep in, and even the most orthodox were often unconsciously affected by it. Those in the pews were more inclined to chafe against that which they regarded as the rigidity and narrowness of their fathers, and those in the pulpit had to tone down these aspects of truth which were most repellent to the carnal mind if they were to retain their popularity. Side by side with modern inventions and increased means for travel and the dissemination of news came what was termed a broader outlook and a more charitable spirit. Posing as an angel of light, Satan succeeded in Arminianizing many places of truth And even where this was not accomplished, high Calvinism was whittled down to moderate Calvinism. These are solemn facts which no student of ecclesiastical history can deny. Christendom has not fallen into its present condition all of a sudden. Rather, its present state is the outcome of a long and steady deterioration. The deadly poison of error was introduced here a little, there a little, with a quantity increased as less opposition came against it, as the acquiring of, quote, converts absorbed more and more of the attention and strength of the church, the standard of doctrine lowered, sentiment displaced conviction, and fleshy, fleshly methods were introduced. In a comparatively short time, many of those sent out to the foreign field were rank Arminians, preaching another gospel. This reacted upon the homeland, and soon the interpretations of Scripture given out from pulpits moved into line with the, quote, new spirit which had captivated Christendom. While we do not affirm that everything modern is evil or that everything ancient was excellent, there is no doubt that the greater part of the boasted progress in Christendom of the 19th and 20th centuries was a progress downward and not upward, away from God and not towards Him, into the darkness and not the light. Therefore, we need to examine with double caution any religious views which deviate from the common teachings of the godly reformers and Puritans. We we need not be worshippers of antiquity as such, but we need to regard with suspicion those broader interpretations of God's Word which have become popular in recent times. We should point out that some of the reasons why we do not believe that Christ was making a broadcast invitation that was issued promiscuously to the light-headed, gay-hearted, pleasure-crazy masses, which had no appetite for the gospel and no concern for eternal interest. This call was not addressed to the godless, careless, giddy, and worldly multitudes, but rather to those who were burdened with a sense of sin and longed for relief of conscience. First, the Lord Jesus received no commission from heaven to bestow rest of soul upon all, but only upon the elect of God. For I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all that he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. John 6:38-39. That necessarily regulated all his ministry. Second, the Lord Jesus always practiced what he preached. To his disciples he said, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, 
and turn again and rend you, Matthew 7, 6. Can we then conceive of our holy Lord inviting the unconcerned to come unto him for that which their hearts abhorred? Has he set his ministers such an example? Surely the word he would have them press upon the pleasure-intoxicated members of our generation is, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the days of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Ecclesiastes 11.9 Third, the immediate context is entirely out of harmony harmony with the wider interpretation. Christ pronounced solemn woes, most solemn woes, on those who despised and rejected him, Matthew eleven twenty to 24 drawing consolation from the sovereignty of God and thanking him before, because he had hidden from the wise and prudent the things which belonged unto their eternal peace, but had revealed them unto babes, verses 25 and 26. It is these babes he invites to himself, and we find him presented as the one commissioned by the Father and as the revealer of him, verse 27. It must not be concluded that we do not believe in an unfettered gospel or that we are opposed to the general offer of Christ to all who hear it. Not so. His marching orders are far too plain for any misunderstanding. His master has bidden them preach the gospel to every creature, so far as divine providence admits. And the substance of the gospel message is that Christ died for sinners and stands ready to welcome every sinner willing to receive him on his terms. The Lord Jesus announced the design of his incarnation in sufficiently general terms as to warn any man truly desiring salvation to believe in him. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.13 Many are called, even though few are chosen. Matthew 20.16 The way we spell out our election is by coming to Christ as lost sinners, trusting in his blood for pardon and acceptance with God. In his excellent sermon on these words before us, John Newton pointed out that when David was driven into the wilderness by the rage of Saul, quote, everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain, captain over them. 1 Samuel 22.2 But David was despised by those like Nabal, Verse 20, 1 Samuel 25.10 lived at their ease. They did not believe he should be a king over Israel. Therefore they preferred the favor of Saul, whom God had rejected. Thus it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Though a divine person invested with all authority, grace, and blessing, and declaring that he would be the king of all who obeyed his voice, yet the majority saw no beauty that they should desire him, felt no need of him, and so rejected him. Only a few who were consciously burdened believed his word and came to him for rest. What did our Lord signify when he bade all the weary and heavy laden come unto me? First, it is evident that something more than a physical act of coming to hear him preach was intended. These words were first addressed to those already in his presence. Many who attended his ministry and witnessed his miracles never came to him in the sense intended. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
The same holds true today. Something more than a bare approach through the ordinance, listening to preaching, submitting to baptism, partaking of the Lord's Supper, is involved in coming to Christ. Coming to Christ in the sense he invited is a going out of the soul after him, a desire for him, a seeking after him, a personal embracing and trusting him. Coming to Christ suggests first and negatively a leaving of something, for the divine promise is, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28.13 Coming to Christ, then, denotes turning our backs on, upon the world and turning our hearts unto him as our only hope. It means to abandon every idol and surrender ourselves to his lordship. It is repudiating our own righteousness and dependency and the heart going out to him in loving submission and trustful confidence. It is an entire going out of self with all its resolutions to cast ourselves upon his mercy. It is the will yielding itself to his authority to be ruled by him and to follow where he leads. In short, it is the whole soul of a self-condemned sinner turning unto a whole Christ, exercising all our faculties, responding to his claims upon us, and prepared to unreservedly trust, unfeignedly love, and devotedly serve him. Thus, coming to Christ is the turning of the whole soul to him. Perhaps this calls for amplification. There are three principal faculties in the soul, the understanding, the affections, and the will. Since each of these were operative and affected by our original departure from God, so they are and must be active in our return to Christ. Of Eve it is recorded, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, Genesis 3.6. First, she saw that the tree was good for food. She perceived the fact mentally, a conclusion drawn from her understanding. Second, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, that was a response of her affections to it. Third, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, here was the moving of her will and took of the fruit thereof and did eat, was the completed action. So it is in the sinner's coming to Christ. First there is apprehension by the understanding. The mind is enlightened and brought to see a deep need for Christ and his suitability to meet those needs. The intelligence sees he is good for food, the bread of life for the nourishment of our souls. Second, there is the moving of the affections. Before we saw no beauty in Christ that we should we should desire him, but now he is pleasant to our eyes, excuse me, pleasant to the eyes of our soul. It is the heart turning from the love of sin to the love of holiness, from self to the Savior. Third, in coming to Christ there is an exercise of the will, for he said to those who would not receive him, You will not come to me that you might have life, John five forty. This exercise of the will is a yielding of ourselves to his authority. None will come to Christ while they remain in ignorance of him. The understanding must accept his suitability for sinners before the mind can turn intelligently to him as he is revealed in the gospel.
Neither can the heart come to Christ while it hates him or is wedded to the things of time and space. The affections must be drawn out to him. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be an anathema. 1 Corinthians 16.22 Equally evident is it that no man will come to Christ while his will is opposed to him. It is the enlightening of his understanding and the firing of his affections which subdues his enmity and makes the sinner willing in the day of God's power. Psalm 110 verse 3 Observe that these exercises of the three faculties of the soul correspond in character to the threefold office of Christ, the understanding enlightened by him as prophet, the affections moved by his work as priest, and the will bowing to his authority as king. In the days on earth, the Lord Jesus stooped to minister to the needs of men's bodies, and not a few came unto him and were healed. In that we may see an adumbration of him as the great physician of souls and what is required of sinners if they are to receive spiritual healing at his hand. Those who sought out Christ to obtain bodily relief were persuaded of his mighty power, his gracious willingness, and of their own dire need. But note that then, as now, this persuasion in the Lord's sufficiency and his readiness to nourish varied in different cases. The centurion spoke with full assurance, Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Matthew 8.8 8. The leper expressed himself more dubiously, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Matthew 8.2 Another used fainter language. If thou canst do anything, have compassion and help us. Mark 9.22 Yet even there the Redeemer did not break the bruise reed nor quench the smoking flax, but graciously wrought a miracle on his behalf. But observe that in each of these cases there was a personal, actual application to Christ, and it was this very application which manifested their faith even though it was as small as a grain of mustard seed. They were not content with having heard of his fame, but improved it. They sought him out for themselves, acquainted him with their case, and implored his compassion. So it must be with those troubled about soul concerns. Saving faith is not passive, but operative. Moreover, the faith of those who sought Christ for physical relief refused to be deterred by difficulties. In vain the multitudes charged the blind man to be quiet, Mark 10.48. Knowing that Christ was able to give sight, he cried so much the more. Even when Christ appeared to manifest a great reserve, the woman refused to leave till her request was granted, Matthew 15.27. Chapter 16, The Rest of Christ Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. In a message on these words, John Newton pointed out, quote, The dispensation of the gospel may be compared to the cities of refuge in Israel. It was a privilege and honor to the nation in general that they had such sanctuaries of divine appointment, but the real value of them was known and felt by only a few. 
those alone who found themselves in that case for which they were provided could rightly prize them. Thus it is with the gospel of Christ. It is the highest privilege and honor of which a professing nation can boast, but it can be truly understood and esteemed by none except weary and heavy-laden souls who have felt their misery by nature, are tired of the drudgery of sin, and have seen the broken law pursuing them like an avenger of blood of old. This is the only consideration which keeps them from sinking into abject despair in that God has graciously provided a remedy by the gospel and that Christ bids them, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. End quote. If awakened, convicted, and distressed souls would but appropriate the full comfort of that blessed invitation and obey its terms, their complaints would end. But remaining in ignorance, the workings of unbelief, and the opposition of Satan combine to keep them back. Some will say, I am not qualified to come to Christ. My heart is so hard, my conscience so insensible, that I do not feel the burden of my sins as I ought, nor my need of Christ's rest as I should. Others will say, I fear that I do not come aright. I see from the scriptures and hear from the pulpit that repentance is required from me and that faith is an absolute essential if I am to be saved. But I am concerned to know whether my repentance is sincere and deep enough and if my faith is anything better than a historical one, the ascent of the mind to the facts in the gospel. We may discover from those who sought healing from him what is meant by the invitation Christ makes to those who have sought the approval of God and met his requirements in the law. First, they were persuaded of his power and willingness and of their own deep need of his help. So it is in the matter of salvation. The sinner must be convinced that Christ is mighty to save, that he is ready to receive all who are sick of sin and want to be healed. Second, they made an application to him. They were not content to hear of his fame, but wanted proof of his wonder-working power. So, too, the sinner must not only credit the message of the gospel, but also he must seek him and trust him. Those who sought Christ as a physician of souls continued with him and became his followers. They received him as their Christian, excuse me, as their Lord and Master, renounced what was inconsistent with his will, Luke 9:23-60, professed an obedience to his precepts and accepted a share in his reproach. Some had a more definite call to him, such as Matthew, who was sitting at the receipt of customs indifferent to the claims of Christ until he said, Follow me, Matthew 9.9. That word was accompanied with power and won his heart, separating him from worldly pursuits in an instant. Others were drawn to him more secretly by his spirit, such as Nathaniel, John 1.46, and the weeping penitent, Luke 7.38. The ruler came to the Lord with no other intention than to obtain the life of his son, John 4.53, but he secured much more than he expected, and he believed with all his house. These things are recorded for our encouragement. The Lord Jesus is not on earth in visible form, but he promised his spiritual presence to abide with his word, his ministers, and his people to the end. Weary sinners do not have to take a hard journey to find the Savior, for he is always near. Acts 17.27 Wherever his gospel is preached, 
But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. Romans 10, 6-8 If you cannot come to Christ with a tender heart, and burdened conscience, then come to him for them. And this ends the reading of tape number nine. Please continue on to the next tape in the series. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of The Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation bookshelf and Puritan bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.